We're uh, working our way through this confession of the mystery of godliness and we've covered the first three statements uh, which uh, kind of form a unit uh, in themselves uh, with the focus on uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, his, his incarnation, his spirit-empowered ministry and then his resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand, seen by the angelic hosts. The next three statements then follow a similar pattern which parallels the first three but with a bit of an emphasis more now on the fruit of Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection that flowed from the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. So, as you can see, he whom we proclaim among the nations is Christ who became flesh and was crucified for us. Uh, When we believe in him, we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to see and know that Jesus is alive. And then when Jesus comes again in glory, it will be with all of his angels when he sits on his glorious throne. Now we may be tempted to, to see these next two statements proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world as not about what Jesus has done but what we do. But we are the ones who proclaim, we are the ones who believe, right? It's true that these things involve our actions but notice that the focus is still on Jesus. He is the one who's proclaimed. He is the one who is believed on, not us. The part that our actions play in these two statements in proclaiming and believing is that it brings glory to Jesus, not to us. And in both, ultimately, it's not even us who do the work. When we proclaim, it is the Father speaking through us, making known the glory of his Son. It's the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And when we believe, even that is not of ourselves. Our faith itself is not by works, it's a gift of God. So, when was Jesus proclaimed among the nations? Because it says it in the past tense. Earlier than you might think. Just as we have done in the last three weeks, uh, today we're going to do a quick survey of the Gospels to see how this truth is seen in his life and ministry and how it then lays the foundation for what happens at Pentecost. In our first reading, we heard the well-known story of the Magi, the wise men visiting the newborn Jesus. The Magi were Persian priestly scholars who would have been familiar with the Jewish scriptures because ever since the Jews were in exile in Babylon and Persia, which is present day Iran, Iraq, uh, Jews were living in that region. So for 500 years the Jews were there. It was actually the centre of Jewish learning and scholarship rather than Jerusalem for many centuries. So they, they would have known Uh, the scriptures. Now the scandal of this story is that Herod, the current ruler of the Jews, should have been the one to welcome and worship the Messiah. Instead, 
he wanted to have him killed. And then by contrast, we have these pagan, idolatrous foreigners who historically belonged to the people who had been Israel's greatest enemy. They're the ones who recognise him and worship him. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The first people to receive him were those from among the nations. And this then sets a precedent for the rest of the Gospel story. Uh, We see the the righteous, the respected, the pious failing to recognise Jesus for who he is and instead the the outsider, the marginalised, the oppressed, they're the ones who come to him for forgiveness and healing and restoration. And among those are a number of Gentiles, non-Jews. There's a Roman centurion. There's a Gerasene from across the lake of Galilee and there's a Canaanite woman. And we're going to look at each of those people and as we do, you might be able to in some way put yourself in the shoes of uh, one or more of those people and we're supposed to because they represent us, the Gentiles, to whom Jesus has been proclaimed. So the first is the Roman centurion. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marvelled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. See how this centurion, Gentile centurion, has a faith that makes him different to all of those in Israel. It's not that he has more faith, it's not the amount of faith but the nature of his faith. What is it that Jesus has seen about this faith? Well, firstly, that it was humble. Do you see how the Jews uh, considered him to be worthy of a miracle because of the good things he'd done by building them a synagogue? But then he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that anything Jesus does to help him would purely be by grace because he doesn't deserve it. 
Secondly, his faith recognises the authority of Jesus' word there in verse 7. That authority he recognises as coming from him being sent and authorised by the Father. Jesus speaks with the full authority of God. So this centurion has actually demonstrated true repentance and faith. I'm a sinner, I'm not worthy, but I trust your word to do what I've asked. That response of repentance and faith came, we see in verse 3, from hearing about Jesus. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Now the timing of this event is significant. It happens immediately after what's known as the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever Jesus, wherever Jesus went, he taught the law to the people. That was part of his role of fulfilling the role of a rabbi. And the Sermon on the Plain, like the Sermon on the Mount, is a summary of what he would have taught hundreds, if not thousands of times throughout his three-year ministry. So the reason that's significant where it's placed here is he goes straight from teaching the law to Jews and he tells them to build their lives on the solid rock of his words. Straight from that to telling and healing the servant of a Gentile. And not any Gentile, a Gentile who represented the oppressive power of Rome who were oppressing them. So this Roman demonstrates a truer faith than these Jews who will go on to reject Jesus. Next, not long after this, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to a region that was geographically within Israel but it was predominantly populated by Gentiles. Any Jew if they could help it, would never travel to this region because they didn't want to mix with the Gentiles. Then they sailed through the country, uh, where are we, of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Uh, Now, Jesus heals this man, he releases him from the demons and he sends the demons into a herd of pigs who then rush down the hill and into the sea and drown in the sea. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might stay, that might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. 
And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Notice how he recognises that Jesus is God. He was told to proclaim how much God had done and he proclaimed how much Jesus had done, which in his understanding of who Jesus was, is the same thing. There are two proclamations that happen here. The first was the herdsman. It prompted the people to come out to see, but their response was one of fear. This Jew, this foreigner had come and had demonstrated authority over the spiritual powers that had held this man captive. And this made Jesus in their eyes a threat. If he had power to free this man from demons and to send the pigs into the lake, then he also would have power over them. In a sense, their response was right. See, such power being present in Israel meant judgement upon them from Israel's God, who clearly was more powerful than the gods they worshipped. You see, Jesus' response did what they asked, then he left. Why? Because, as he said, he did not come to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. But see what he also did before leaving, he sent this man whom he set free to go home and declare how much God has done for him. This is the second proclamation that happens. And it's not only that Jesus is the son of the most high God with all authority and power, but that this Jesus will use all of his authority and power not to condemn but to bring healing to the nations. So even before Jesus sends out his apostles or the 72 to proclaim the kingdom to the towns and cities of Israel, he sends out a Gentile evangelist to a Gentile city. Jesus' third encounter with a Gentile was with a Canaanite woman and a conversation that's intrigued and even offended some people. Jesus Uh, went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Does Jesus seem a bit rude here, maybe even racist? He ignores her at first and then he likens her to a dog. It's shocking to us. But it wouldn't have been shocking to anyone there watching this. 
That's how the Jews related to Gentiles. They called the Gentiles dogs because dogs were unclean animals who were always kept outside the camp. A Jew would never let a dog into their home, let alone have a dog as a pet. Jesus himself had said, do not give dogs what is holy. Knowing that his Jewish audience, hearing that, would immediately be thinking of the Gentiles. But then, see how he finishes. O woman, great is your faith. So what's happened? Had she managed to change his mind by her clever response? Well, not at all. This wasn't about getting Jesus to change his mind. It was about Jesus changing his disciples' minds. They were the ones who came and said to him, send her away. But he didn't. His response was, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, which was true. And he reiterates that then in his words to the woman, that which has been provided for the children, the Jews, shouldn't be tossed to the dogs outside the camp, the Gentiles. But then her response to him is what demonstrates that she has a faith that the disciples don't yet have. Even dogs might be allowed to come into the house and to benefit from the meal that the family is sharing. What's happening in Israel, in Jesus, is that God is giving the bread of life and he's giving it in such abundance that it's going to spill over, to fall off the edges of the table, so to speak, and feed not just Israel but the Gentiles who will be brought in. Jesus said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This Gentile woman is showing by her faith that she actually is one of these lost sheep. She's a true Israelite, not by nationality, but by faith. Now, there's another group of Gentiles I want to take note of. These are Gentiles who wanted to see Jesus, but they didn't get the opportunity, at least not straight away. It's in John chapter 12. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the judgment of this world. Now would the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. These Greeks had come to uh, Jerusalem to worship at the Passover, so they were God-fearers. They weren't full proselytes, but they were able to still participate in the Jewish worship in a limited way. They were allowed into the court of the Gentiles, the court where Jesus drove out the money changers and the traders, but they would not be able to go into the inner courts where the Jews would come to bring their Passover lamb to be sacrificed. 
We don't know why they wanted to see Jesus, but maybe they thought that Jesus could get them in to the inner courts. But it seems as if Jesus completely ignores their request. But he hasn't, because we're told that what he said was an answer to Philip and uh, Philip and Andrew. What's my spot in my notes? Where are we? What he's saying is the time for the Greeks to see him isn't now. Why? Because another time has come. The hour has come for the cross. That's what he means by the Son of Man being glorified. But the time will come for the Greeks. See what he says a bit later. When I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his death, I will draw all people to myself. See, to really come into the inner court, into the presence of God, these Greeks, they needed to come not just to Jesus, the good teacher, they needed to come to Jesus as the crucified, risen Saviour. For the moment, Jesus is doing what he's doing in his role as the Jewish Messiah. He's come for his people Israel according to the flesh and it will be at the cross that redemption will be won for Israel and what he has won for Israel will then be available for all peoples. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The way for the nations to come won't be by adopting the Jewish law, but by believing in the Jewish Messiah. I spoke last week about uh, angels being part of what I called the interim administration that was put in place after humanity sinned in Adam. And you may hear some Christian Bible teachers today talking about the church and Israel as two separate peoples that God's purposes for Israel have been put on hold during the church age and that shortly before Jesus' return he'll take the church out of the world and resume his plan for national Israel. Uh, This is a view that's uh, been called dispensationalism. It's actually only been around for a bit over a hundred years and it presents the church made mainly up of made mainly of Gentiles as if they were the interim administration and Israel being the main story. Now I recognise that even within our church there's, there's a diversity of views on these things but I hold to a different view because I, I see in the scriptures that from the very beginning God's purpose has been about the nations. The nations were formed by him at Babel when he confused the language and scattered them across the face of the earth. The nations are God's idea, his plan, not, not just the side effect of uh, the world, the human race being scattered. See what Paul says in Athens, he made from one man every nation of man to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God created the nations. It was never the plan for humanity to be a homogenous 
monocultural, monolingual lump of people. All of the different cultures and customs and languages of humanity are an expression of the incredible diversity and dignity of human beings made in the image of God. They're a gift from God himself. They're a reflection of God himself who is a community of three persons in the one being. Out of the one man Adam, God created the woman. So at the fundamental level of our humanity we are male and female and in relating as male and female, different yet one, we are reflecting in some sense the nature of God who created us. And we reflect the nature of God's relationship with his people, Christ and the church. Then out of this diversity in unity, he created this wonderful diversity that is humanity. Every nation, people, tribe and language. This design of God for the nations has an ultimate goal. In Revelation, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This multitude is the new redeemed humanity who live in the presence of God and the Lamb for eternity. And note that these distinctions between nations and tribes and peoples and languages aren't lost in this multitude. The diversity still remains. And the fact that it's a diversity expressed in this united voice of worship makes the worship all the more richer and all the more glorifying to God who has caused it to be. The working out of this goal began explicitly with Abraham. When the people were scattered from Babel, he chose one of these people who was scattered and he told him that he and his descendants would be blessed, that this blessing would be for a greater purpose, the blessing would come to all the families of earth. This means that the formation of national Israel through Abraham was a temporary plan that served the greater plan of forming a people for himself from every people, nation, language and tribe. His promise to bless Israel was a means to an end. In Galatians, Paul likens it to a child who has not yet come of age, who needs to be looked after by guardians and tutors, He says the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I believe Jesus' coming marked the end of that interim administration of Israel and he made this clear when he told a parable. He talked about these tenants 
who refused to give the fruit of the vineyard to the owner. They killed his messengers. They even killed the owner's son when he came. So what did the owner do? It says he would kill the tenants and let out the vineyard to new tenants. And then Jesus concludes by saying, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Who was the kingdom taken away from? The leaders of Israel. Who was it given to? The leaders of the church, which is made up of people from every nation. That great multitude that Revelation describes. That's why our verse this morning says, proclaimed among the nations, not proclaimed among Israel. Jesus came as a Jew, he fulfilled the promises of the Jewish Messiah, he died as a sacrifice and as the great high priest in fulfilment of the Jewish scriptures, but he did this in order to purify and sanctify Israel so that they could finally be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that they were supposed to be. And the way he did this was he rebuilt Israel from scratch. Here's what I mean by that. He, when Jesus was born, he became the one true Israelite. He is the only person who has ever walked in perfect obedience to the law of the Lord. And so the first person to receive all of the covenant blessings that would come from that full obedience. So from this one man, like from Adam and like from Abraham, a whole new people will be formed. What was Jesus' first step then? He chose 12 disciples, just like Israel started with 12 sons of Jacob. This new humanity starts with 12 men. Now the number of people who followed Jesus and believed Jesus over his ministry fluctuated from thousands down to just the handful who were standing at the foot of his cross. But after his resurrection, he spent 40 days with these 12 apostles, while he also appeared to 500 others. But he focused on these 12 to prepare them for what was to come. And just before ascending to heaven, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts then is the account of that outward flow of the gospel from Jerusalem to the nations in these three stages. Firstly, Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost there were 120 disciples, 12 times 10 on whom the Spirit came in tongues of fire and enabled them to then speak in the languages of all of the people who were there in Jerusalem for the feast. This crowd were Jews, but because they'd been living in other nations for generations, their first language was the language of the people amongst whom they lived. So they needed to hear the word of the Gospel in the language they could understand. So within one day, this new Israel swelled to over 3,000 
and then it, be, it began to grow on a daily basis. Then Judea and Samaria. So Acts 1 to 7 is all set in Jerusalem until a persecution broke out. The authorities were threatened by this growing movement that was threatening to uh, take over the city. So the Christ, most of the Christians, apart from the apostles, uh, were scattered throughout these two regions of Judea and Samaria. Does this remind you a bit of Babel? Babel was a city where the languages were confused and then the people were scattered. Now we have another city, Jerusalem, where the confusion of languages was taken away. The people are scattered but it's not a scattering of judgement, it's a scattering of blessing because wherever they went they proclaimed the gospel and brought that blessing wherever they went. The gospel going to Judea and Samaria is significant because they're the two versions, the current versions of the Old Testament divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. They were divided after the time of Solomon and they had this long history of animosity between them. Nevertheless, they'd been given a promise through Ezekiel that the day would come when they would be reunited again. This happens, not politically, but through the Gospel. Jews and Samaritans were reconciled in Christ with that age-old hostility broken down. Today there is still a very small community of Samaritans who still follow the worship and religion that they had in Bible times, but historically the majority of Samaritans who heard the Gospel Believed and became Christians, so overjoyed were they that the people of God were one again in Christ. Peter and John, the apostles, were sent from Jerusalem to welcome the Samaritans, to lay hands on them, and then the Samaritans had their own Pentecost in Acts 8 when they received the Holy Spirit. That's step two. Step three is the end of the earth. Now that those who were Israelites according to the flesh had been formed as the new core of this new humanity, the stage was set for the nations to come in and be like wild branches being grafted into the olive tree so there'd be one people of God from every nation. So in Acts 10 we see Gentiles being given their Pentecost. Peter has the vision of unclean animals being lowered in a sheet with the command to take up and eat and the Lord taught him that he should no longer see Gentiles as unclean, as dogs, but that they too should be given the Gospel. So he preached the Gospel to the first group of Gentiles and they received the Holy Spirit and they praised God in other tongues, in their tongues. Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? We're part of it. As all this was happening, the Lord was busy converting Paul and preparing him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And the rest of the book of Acts is the account of the gospel going out further and further to the ends of the earth. Eventually it reached Rome, the centre of the known world, and then from Rome 
The gospel has gone out to every corner of the world, to the ends of the earth. We're part of that story. We've had the gospel of Jesus proclaimed to us in our language and we are called to proclaim it to the next generation. You may have heard of a church planning organisation called Acts 29. They've got a good reason for that name. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts but it finishes in kind of an open-ended way as if, almost as if Luke was planning to write a sequel. Well, we are the sequel, not a book written in ink on paper. We are Acts 29. We are that final chapter with the Holy Spirit writing on human hearts. We're that new humanity drawn from many nations, peoples, tribes and languages, Jews and Gentiles together. And we also, along with the Apostles, have received that great commission of Matthew 28 that we heard in our second reading to keep going, keep proclaiming Jesus. The big question we must all ask is, what part do I play then in that proclamation? What gifts and resources has the Spirit given me as a member of the body of Christ to be building up the church so that together we can proclaim him to the nations.